From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am Brandon Hill, uh, managing editor at Central Sauce, freelancer with OK Player. And with me today, I have Mickey, who is also a writer at Central Sauce uh, and a few other places and host of the Fifth Element radio show, 92 Till. Uh, check that out. That's also on our podcast network. And I'm also here today with Charlie, who is the director of the Fifth Element podcast network um, and our loyal editor of In Search of Sauce. So in this episode, uh, we're going to be diving into some great pieces today. Uh, First, we're going to start off with a newsletter edition of Todd Burns' Music Journalism Insider. Uh, Then we're going to get into a Guardian piece. Um, Amid a rash of cheesy samples is UK rap running out of ideas. That is by Will Pritchard. And we're going to end on a retrospective of the Eminem show uh, for Mike. And that is by Paul Thompson. Uh, but before we jump straight into our pieces, you know, I'd love to hear what you guys have been listening to lately. Go ahead, Mickey. Start with Mickey. Go to Mickey. Yo, what's up, everybody? Thanks for listening. Uh, and as far as what I've been listening to lately, as far as like the last week of releases, I think the thing that really jumped out to me was the 070 Shake album, which the title is escaping me as much as I've been listening to it. But of all the the releases of this past week, I thought it was like the most interesting uh, sonically kind of from front to back. I think there's a, a lot of uh, interesting elements kind of weaved within this core sound. And obvi- it's executive produced by Mike Dean. All of the strings on it are done by Johan Lennox, who uh, last year I interviewed for OK Player. Um, I think it's it's pretty interestingly crafted. It sounds just as good in headphones as it does in the car. Um, but other than that, uh, besides continually listening to Kendrick, the other things that I've been listening to uh, are a lot of R&B EPs, I feel like, and maybe me and Tyler, who's a regular on the show, have talked about the Sypho one, who's one of my favorite singers out of the UK right now. But also this EP by uh, Matt Keen and producer Esta uh, is something I've been been you know running through a bunch. And uh, I think it's it's one of the R&B EPs specifically this year, I feel like are, the, are some of the most kind of cohesive bodies of work that I've been listening to. There's like a solid five of them that I think are really great. And then Sypho and Matt Keen are of the best to me. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys have been talking about R&B a lot in the chat. Like I've seen a lot of that. I need to, I need to catch up on that. Uh, what about yourself, Charlie? Well, funny enough, I've been catching up on some R&B in the past week um, from some <laughs> releases in the part uh, that dropped uh, you know, a few months ago, February, January, whatever. Um, so, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of a half apology to Mickey, uh, I'm shout out Amber Marks, uh, three uh, three dimensions deep. Which, uh, funny enough, you talk about R&B EPs, and that track, that that album's an, a whole hour uh, on the dot. And I was just trying to think to myself, when have I actually listened to an R&B album that's longer than like 45 minutes? Um, Apart from maybe like I don't know Mary J Blige from a while back, I can't I can't remember uh, from what I've listened to so far. But most of most of the R and B stuff I enjoy have usually been under half an hour, which is very interesting. 
and maybe some commentary there. Um, but in a new Uno reverse card, um, there's also uh, Starfruit uh, by Moonchild. And, uh, you know, Mickey got me for not remembering uh, that he did an amazing interview uh, with Amber Mark. So please go peep that, guys. But um, in a Uno reverse card, I don't know how you guys didn't uh, tell me that there was an album that also had uh, Layla Hathaway, Rhapsody, Il Camille, Tank of the Bangers on one album. So, um, yeah. So eat that. <laughs> That's actually, that really should be a critique of Tyler because Tyler was the one who told me about the Moonchild album specifically right after it dropped. So Tyler, Tyler. You've, you've been accused by Charlie. Tyler. When you listen to this podcast, just know that. Tyler, I'm coming for you. All right. All right. And as for myself, actually, I've been pretty behind on the new stuff, really. I was just like scrolling through my playlist. Um, the only really, I guess, new project that's I've been listening to since I last did the podcast is uh, actually Millie's new album, uh, Blanco Five. Uh, as you know, you know I've been trying to like keep up with the local like Boston artists and greater Boston artists. I think he's from Cambridge. Um, but yeah, Blanco Five, really good. Um, sort of in the same vein, Mickey. I don't know if you've listened to it yet. I, I think you'd like it though, because it's sort of in the same vein as that little Dirk album. Yeah. Um, it's very like sort of like tra- sad trap artist kind of vibes. Um, you know that middle ground between like singing and rapping, uh, back and forth a lot. Some pretty good production on there too. Uh, other than that, I've been, actually been listening to a lot of Akai solo um, and going back to the Arm and Hammer records uh, because I just recently actually saw. Uh, at a live show, Injury Reserve, Akai Solo, and Arm and Hammer, uh, which was a crazy, crazy good show. Uh, so, you know, running back some of those albums, they hit a little different now after, like, really seeing them put on such a great show here in Boston. So, fair enough. Yeah. And now we can uh, jump right in. So, we're actually we're going to start with mine, which is easy enough um, since I'm hosting. So my my piece today I'm bringing is uh, titled number 30, 136, Decadence and Disenchantment uh, by Todd L. Burns, and it is an edition of Music Journalism Insider, specifically last week's edition, the uh, May 31st edition. So this is a, a really long overdue shout out on the podcast here. Um, Music Journalism Insider is a free weekly newsletter by Todd L. Burns. That is a must-subscribe for music journalists, both aspiring and well-established. Uh, I think anyone like trying to get into music journalism, subscribing to Music Journalism Insider is literally one of the best pieces of advice that I could give. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the specific content in last week's edition, but this feature on the podcast is really just a love letter to Music Journalism Insider as a whole. Uh, so just a bit about the newsletter here. So... Every week, uh, the newsletter goes out and it features a few recurring sections. My personal favorite is the reading list, uh, where Todd puts together a bulleted collection of links to various pieces of written music journalism. And I especially like how the bullets uh, and the newsletter as a whole, actually, you know, they really center uh, the journalist, right? So one such bullet actually in the latest edition of the newsletter reads, Mickey Hellerback profiles hip hop artists who have embraced a content creator strategy. So shout out Mickey, actually. Coincidentally, coincidentally, (laughs) the day that we're talking about this on the podcast, he actually, uh, one of his articles was just featured in the, this week's edition of Music Journalism Insider. So shout out Mickey, but... Brandon, yeah, so I, didn't, Todd, I didn't know Brandon was going to do that for the record, and he's making, <laughs> making me blush over here, but keep going. So, yeah, so Todd, um, and he always hyperlinks, 
hyperlinks the articles like directly to the journalist's name and all the bullets, you know, they list the the name of the writer first, which, you know, it just really speaks to that, like centering the writer first. And it's actually, now that I mention it, since I like consistently am scanning this newsletter, I think it's one of the ways that's really helped my like name recognition of writers, you know, because there are certain names, you see them on the newsletter, uh, you see them on the Twitter, you know, and it becomes like easier to connect sort of like that, that internal like who's who type deal. Um, so I really appreciate that quality of the, of the newsletter. And um, so as I, you know, I scan this letter every week, uh, naturally several articles that Todd has included have ended up in spotlights here on In Search of Sauce. Um, it's always a reliable go-to every single week for like some piece of good writing. Um, and it's a good quick scan for like a large variety of writing too. You know, it's covered, I think actually specifically, um, some of the articles I've pulled on like heavy metal uh, act that we've done on the podcast actually come from this newsletter um, because my normal like reading consumption on Twitter, you know, I'm not in like the metal or even the rock journalist spheres as much. Um, but because of the variety that's featured in Music Journalism Insider, um, you know, I get a lot more on like metal, rock, pop. And usually the uh, the articles he features too are not usually just like a profile or a quick interview. Um, they're usually like larger fe feature pieces, like well-reported pieces, um, you know, writing that extends beyond music often enough. Um, so in addition to, you know, just including links to writing, he also gathers up a collection of like new podcast episodes. Um, I think In Search of Sauce has landed on there at least twice, I think for our interview with Elliot Wilson um, and maybe one of our Pulitzer episodes where we talked about uh, Kendrick and music journalism in that, in that vein. So um, the Q&A section of the newsletter is also really great. It includes these excerpts from Todd, who's usually interviewing other music journalists um, in a similar kind of nerdy way that we've spoken to journalists on our own podcast. You know, since the, the newsletter itself is targeted at music journalists, uh, the Q&As like always take that angle. For example, in this edition, Todd speaks with the co-founder of The Quietest, Luke Turner, and he asked, what would you like to see less of in music journalism right now? To which Turner responded, mainstream pop exists in this rarefied space where it is beyond critique, where every fast-released album by megastars is given gushing reviews after only a few listens to be sure of hitting the SEO, where artists are appraised on their celebrity, journey, or even their ethics rather than whether or not they're any good or interesting. I'm quite bored of a lot of more mainstream artists seeming to say the same thing and miss complicated, abrasive characters. So it's always these like really in-depth, you know, sort of behind the scenes conversations between journalists almost. Um, and you get a lot of those, you know, questions that normally wouldn't come up in a, in a, um, an interview or a piece that was targeted at a broader, you know, reading audience, you know, because it's so narrowly aimed, you get such niche um, content for people who are interested in that like music journalism side of things. And then between the Q and A's and the lists, uh, the newsletter is littered with tweets that are often only hilarious if you're a music journalist. Uh, trivia, which I was going to see if you guys knew the answer to this week's trivia question. Uh, who were the first two women? <laughs> that's yeah, that's surprising. I, was I, I, I had I a guess. I was like, oh, I actually knew yeah. that. Go me. <laughs> I, I had a guess, but there was like no way. I was like, nah, I don't know. But the question was, uh, who were the first two women? to each be featured solo on the cover of XXL magazine. So Charlie, why don't, why don't you go ahead there? If you, if you know the answer, give us the answer and then tell us um, how you, you know, how you knew that, like what memory 
sort of spark the answer to that um, trivia? Well, on DITD, Ding Digits, obviously, I'm um, part of the FIFA Podcast Network. If you have people on Pete Jerko, people on the full show notes, um, we did, um, we have done uh, retrospectives on Eve and the Brat. Um, so it really came up on just general research um, uh, on, on both of them when we did uh, their respective episodes. Um, but yeah, and uh, yeah, so it's just, it just came off that. I didn't realize um, it was on, like, the, you know, the, they are uh, on the same cover, um, so to speak, 11, 11A and 11B, respectively, as it says on there. Um, so, yeah, but I knew it was them two specifically. What uh, what year would that have been? Or at least... Oh, shit, don't ask me that. I don't think it said, I don't <laughs> think it said in, the, in the trivia answer. I just do the Because I was wondering, I was, trying to th- I was trying to think of, like, like, what female artists would be featured and then trying to think back to, like, like what year would it have been most likely for someone to have been the first female artist on the cover of XXL? I'm looking up right now, so if he's um, yeah, so I I'll, I'll be honest if you want. I don't know if I have a like total understanding. I d- first of all, I definitely did not know the answer to the trivia, uh, but I I I want to say like E. I I don't really know if I have like locked in my head what the years of relevance for Debrat were, but I feel like Eve had to be early two thousands, right? That would would be what would make sense to me. I, I if I had to guess, I'd say like oh three oh four, but I'm not totally sure about that. Anyway, I want to talk about at least for the newsletter. And again, Todd, thanks for like gassing up my piece again, Brandon. But also <laughs> definitely shout out Todd for featuring me. I worked really hard on that piece, so I'd love if anyone who would be interested in that piece would read it. Um, and I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, but what I really want to talk about about this this newsletter in general is uh, is a word I feel like I've <laughs> I feel like I use specific words a lot in kind of sequencing periods of episodes on on this podcast. But the one I've <laughs> been liking a lot, but just totally applies here, is holistic. I feels like a totally mm-hmm. holistic um, representation of the state of music journalism in one newsletter that's concise and totally digestible, which is really incredible. Like even with the Q and A's in this one that we're dissecting here, he interviews in one newsletter and just shows little snippets and gives you the option to read the whole thing. The co-founder of the quietest, a TV podcast producer and music writer, and the chair of the music chair of the department of music at nyu so it gets this really kind of whole state of like music journalism and ideas about music in one very very focused but like rounded place and then he doesn't just highlight writing which you know at the end of the day and we've been doing it more and more on the podcast as well is literally you know making his newsletter mirror the state of where everything is at. He has an extensive reading list and will not forget about the long form, really well-researched pieces, which is still totally necessary and relevant and should be highlighted more, which we try to do here, but also has a whole section for highlighting podcasts, like Brandon said, and a whole other section, which is literally called pivoting to video, which, I mean, no matter which way you look at it, there's literal full publications who are getting rid of their written editorial and pivoting straight to video because at the end of the day, people are going to be heavily more inclined to watch YouTube. And it's important to highlight those people who are doing video journalism really, really well. And then uh, along with being super holistic, is that the kind of trivia thing, the, the tweets, it's all very, very interactive and jumps from one thing to another, feels like it has a through line, but always keeps you in, intrigued. So you'll actually go through the whole newsletter. I mean, it's it's number 136 and you can tell how seasoned he is at producing it. Mm. And I also just mm. want to shout him out for like, I hope people realize how much work it must take to go yeah. go into making this newsletter, even in like every week is insane. Like the, the yeah. amount, 
first of all, the amount of reading he does, like, I can't do that. Like, I, I don't know <laughs> how, like he has a full job at you discover music, which he writes down at the bottom too. But like that amount of reading, like idol status, like is incredible because he's also like, there's plenty of other pieces that have dropped, which means he's reading much more than even listed. But he's like, these are the ones I really want to highlight, which is incredible doing the interviews and then, you know, breaking them down to be presented three. So he must just have a backlog or if he's literally doing three a week, plus reading all of those pieces, plus doing a full-time job, plus watching all the videos and listening to all the podcasts. I don't know when he sleeps. Literally. (laughs) I have no idea. Plus even even like on the on the reading side of things too like it's definitely worth mentioning the variety of publications and writers that he covers oh yeah um you All know even even here at central sauce like we tend to have sort of like a grouping of of favorite writers or publications you know that we can reliably like go back to because that's sort of in our sphere um but he's i mean all over so many publications i have discovered through this newsletter you know that i then go back and i check the whole publication um and same for writers too like you know, he puts something in front of you, you click it and read it, really are drawn to like, oh, like, I really like this voice. I like this style. Like, now I'm gonna follow this writer. Like, so a lot of the ways through this newsletter have organically, like expanded um, into just like a general, like, sphere of media consumption in general. I like the, um, you referenced, obviously, Mickey, um, the fact that it's not just um, writing, it's also, you know, video and uh, stuff like that. Actually, I, I was, I was looking at that and I saw the BBC has a new documentary about jazz in the UK and I actually clicked on it and looked at it. I was just like, motherfucker, I didn't even clock this. I'm going I'm to spin this later. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, so, his, yeah. his curation is bar none. It's crazy. I, I, you can go through the whole... I, I swear, I'm not making this up. You can go through the whole thing and everything that you click on is going to be like, oh, this is super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it is a very... Um, exhaustive list and the fact that you just said he does it three times a week be- beggars belief to be honest um like if it, even if this was a one-time weekly thing if this was a monthly thing i'd be like this is decent you know what i mean it's just it, just doing this three times a week doesn't <laughs> doesn't make sense to me um i saw on the top of the top of it on the reading list uh, there's you know there's a couple of hat tips here so even with that it's not like people are lashing him stuff because he's clearly stated on a couple of them that he got hatted from some uh, from a couple of them. So from the fact that he, all all the rest of this is purely just him um from what we from what we understand from the hat tip is just it doesn't make sense to me. Um so yeah, respect on just the entire uh exhaustive nature on it and also just the fact that it's very wide ranging. I think Brandon mentioned that a little bit. Um the fact that it's not just cuz even with even with um you know, of our like a uh, I don't know, hip hop Twitter, for example, you know, they, 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 so a couple of accounts, you know, post like, oh, what's dropping this week? Da, 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 da. You know, that's kind of exhaustive, depending on where you go. Um, for certain, th- even for certain things, some do more of the mainstream stuff. Um, there's one account I forget that don't do a lot of the underground shit and I've, you know, hate names that you've never heard of, but, you know, they're there and they're releasing, so go peep. Um, but with this, it's just a lot of variety. You know, like I said, UK jazz on the podcasting front, the visual front, uh, legacy of the iPod, state of jazz criticism, digital blackface. That's on the podcast alone. Um, so, mm. and, and obviously the uh, couple of Q and A's um, that you guys referenced as well. And I do, I do like the, I guess the marketing of this in some ways, like the in-house marketing of this, where they, you know, where he put the que- he put the little question of the XXL magazine. I have it by the way. If you guys want to guess the year and the month, if you want, um, but um, 
you know, past that. And then uh, obviously the, like you said, with the Q&As, having the read the full interview and just, you know, putting a cup, putting an intro and just the, you know, the first question and, you know, just keeps going and going. You don't know really when it's going to finish because it's just like closing credits and then still goes and still goes. And then a friendly <laughs> reminder. And it still goes, oh, there's the trivia answer, then a final note, finally. So, yeah, it is from a just an in-house kind of, you know, keeping you engaged, engagement, I guess that's what the t- I'm looking for. Um, in terms of engagement, it's very, very well done and very, um, uh, very astute. Um, so, big ups on that front, especially. Yeah. I think the, the kind of last thing I want to say, and then obviously I'll bounce pass back to Brandon so he can close out his piece and newsletter for the week, is uh, I think... <laughs> this is just like adding on to all of the things that it already is. He also at the at the bottom of the newsletter also literally shows how he uses the newsletter as a resource. If you want to subscribe and really tap in, he has a whole section about ways that you can use the 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 newsletter to pitch with a pitch database to have all the ways you can pitch. He has literally insider things where he just highlights all of the the kind of pitch openings that are happening in the industry, some advice that you can give to all of music journalists. So it's, I mean, to, to first of all, give support and then provide an entire resource is really amazing. And I also, on my end, want to just encourage people who are anyone who's listening to the podcast who may not be familiar with it to do as he says, which is to subscribe, but also do even extra if you're so inclined to like buy him a coffee, as he says, with the master link. Yeah, which I definitely, Todd, I definitely owe you a coffee at some point <laughs> for as, as much as I have utilized this newsletter. And yeah, Mickey's talking about um, there's an option for like a paid support, you know, that includes advice, um, reading recommendations, a how to pitch database, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's also worth mentioning he does say in the newsletter that if you are a college student or a recent grad um, to just shoot him an email and he'll give you a year subscription for free. Um, so that, you know, just really speaks to the nature of Todd in this newsletter as being really, as Mickey said, holistic, um, really, really about the media, really about the the community and the overall status of it. Um, the most like on brand, on topic, you know, newsletter of its kind, I think for sure. So that's uh, yeah. Shout out Music Journalism Insider and Todd L. Burns. Now, Mickey, no, Charlie, I'm going to go ahead and throw it to you uh, to introduce your piece. Yeah, um, and in efforts of engagement, I'll tell you the answer to the uh, XXL year uh, oh, right, at the end yeah. of the show. <laughs> Since you guys never gave it Um Yeah, so this is uh, for, by The Guardian, uh, by uh, Will Pritchard, um, called Amid a Rash of Cheesy Samples. Is UK rap running out of ideas? Um, so... You know, the question, the answer is no, obviously, um, but, you know, we'll get mm-hmm. into it. Um, so the entire thing basically is talking about and based upon uh, many tracks that are in the UK uh, charts in the moment that have uh, kind of gone through this um, new formula or not so new formula, if you want to, you know, be specific, um, of taking, obviously, samples from, you know, tracks that, you know, a, a certain people grew up on, a certain audience grew up on, and, you know, just basically just jacking them, sampling them, and uh, creating a new, giving it a new, uh, uh, giving it a new vibe uh, for a new audience, of course, and obviously 
um, in terms of nostalgia, obviously getting points on that front. Um, and they reference obviously plenty of well, will reference uh, plenty of tracks here. Uh, RD, um, one of the most uh, most noble ones, uh, going off uh, the heady one. AJ Tracy and Stormzy's ain't it different from 2010, which he kind of sees as the uh, as the source of all this, um, which uh, you know kind of tracks. Um, but for me personally, and this is interesting because as you know, the only UK guy here, I haven't listened to most of these tracks, and that's kind of because uh, one, I have my ecosystem, and two, I don't check for charts. And the fact that there's so many examples here, and I'm just like, I haven't heard, <laughs> I haven't heard someone uh, sampling uh, "Sweet Female Attitudes Flowers," which is a banger track, by the way. It's a garage track. It bangs. It, it, I love me some garage back in the day. But the fact that people, uh, the artists, are currently um, sampling those particular things um, does fascinate me. Um, the most um, the one, the one I've heard, um, well, I, I voluntarily listened um, out of support for Ashanti, but um, H is um, baby, and um, and yeah, it's not, it's not great. Um, that's a, but you know, Ashanti gets the money, so I'm um, if it, I don't, uh, you know, I don't like it, I love it. Um, but yeah, the whole uh, essay kind of just goes in and more inwards towards it, trying to find. Uh, an answer towards the question of um, is UK rap running out of the ideas and you know that kind of gives off the uh, question that for someone like me give a shit about uh, what UK rap is doing for the mainstream and that's kind of how I go about it that's how I see it uh, from answering this question and what this, uh, what this uh, uh, mini essay is uh, giving me is that you know, I can name UK artists that don't chart, but they do plenty of good UK rap. You know, um, when Mickey was over here um, in the UK for a, a lot, was it last month or two months ago? It seems so long. It seems so long ago. So no, no, time flies, you know. Time, time flies, you know. Fun. Um, but we were chopping up about um, drill and um, and just the landscape and just the music landscape at the moment. And we didn't touch upon this particular side of things, which is kind of interesting because now that I'm now that I read this and I did a little bit of digging on it, I'm just like, oh, raw, this actually is genuinely a trend. Um, and I don't think I think we can probably find examples um, here and definitely in the US uh, that have gone at a certain thing. You know, I've kind of been um, uh, talking about the more recent uh, uh, sampling of you know eighties music and uh, how that's coming back in some ways. Obviously, with stuff like the Weekend and uh, the Leaper and that. Uh, and so yeah, it's not it's not any it's not any different between uh, you know compared to something like that. So to ask if UK raps run out of ideas um, is kind of uh, you know it's, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of an odd question to me. But I do I do appreciate uh, from the article itself and just how it is. Um, it is well uh, I guess uh, well researched and uh, gives a lot of good examples, but. You know, to say the it, you know, it depends if you're a drill purist, I guess, because there is one <laughs> bit, there is one quote somewhere. I'm, I'm gonna try and find it while you guys talk. Um, but he kind of mentions that uh, uh, people have separated real drill um, and this kind of uh, whatever UK rap's going through right now. And um, as a more broader note, and I'll finish here. In terms of UK rap history, this is actually very fascinating going from where we are now to where UK rap was even literally a decade ago, um, where there were where music labels again were trying to get their sink their teeth into it. 
and uh, into the into the culture so to speak into the music of the day and you know they succeeded with a few artists um but for, but now um it's gone through obviously kind of like a rebirth in the mid to mid 2010s with the skeptics and jmes leading the way on that front and now it's come back to towards more of what it was 10 years ago where artists don't really artists are kind of more embracing it now they're, they're they're more embracing of it there's more examples of people you know doing the taking this trend and just you know hey it gets me charting so i'm gonna i'm gonna go for it why would i not you know like the tion waynes like the h's and the rd so um and there's plenty more examples compared to 10 years ago so it's very interesting to see the um, to see the wave of um, how UK rap is responding to mainstream success, and um, I can get very pessimistic about thinking about that, but I'll I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, I think um, what the article does really interestingly is kind of separates it into two sections, which is like the musical side of this ideology and like mm. the technical reasoning for it. Mm. And I couldn't mm. help but like compare this, this, and you said, Charlie, the state of drill, which is the thing that we talked about. I, I literally brought a piece of the podcast where, uh, where uh, I believe the journalist, Abe Beam for GQ talked to Cash Cobain, who's like the most prominent sample drill producer specifically in the Bronx right now. So I couldn't help obviously with reading this, this is a strictly UK perspective and doesn't even mention the New York kind of drill side of these these things but the, compare the the influx of sampling drill in the uk to the us because it's starkly different so mm. like in the uk bringing in and what's really well explored in this piece bringing in samples has been a way at least for a lot of people to go out of the purest of drill ways and to actually make poppier records where in the us it's actually like when they started using drill it was very, very regional, based strictly like in the Bronx in New York at first, and was way more from like a street perspective, not making songs attempting to get on the radio, but like a really underground sound that's like not Pop Smoke 5EO foreign, but is very like an underground gritty, grimy sound for drill. Um, so it just was really interesting and I thought really well broke down in the piece to compare kind of those two scenes and how it all is working. But then to kind of expand beyond that, the thing that really intrigued me more than anything about the piece is the through line of the idea of a catch 22 in the music industry, which I think is the thing that these the drill artists seem to be kind of grappling with and is explored in the piece, which is uh, the kind of urge for them to create these poppier sample based records in order to do two things, obviously for the numbers perspective, to sell more records, to tap into nostalgia, but also there's similar problems in the UK as there are in the US with um, basically the hip hop police and uh, the, the authorities viewing drill artists as uh, quote unquote gang members and kind of targeting them for their music and so then the drill rappers, in order to like still be able to keep selling music and, you know, kind of expand into a bigger market, but also to like get the cops off of their back, they are making poppier records with samples in order to like not be targeted with their music. But on the same level, they run the risk of abandoning their core fan base uh, because they're not doing what is, again, quote unquote, kind of original or uh, I don't know, they used a better word for it and they do in the piece, but just kind of pure, I guess, drill and where it comes from, um, which goes Sample back into drill. the... Yeah, just not into yeah. that, into like the non-sample, but what the, the originate, 
original. Yeah. Well, it's just all funny because UK drill is like a product of other things already. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a product of Chicago mixed with garage and, and kind of like combining ooh, ooh. those two things. I, well, okay. Well, Charlie. No, it's just the way you said that. Garage. Garage. Well, I could say garage, I guess, but that's yeah, like. Yeah, you could. You could. You should. Right, I'll just say garage. Yeah, please. <laughs> please. Jesus I was trying Christ. to do a UK. Well, Brandon, Brandon's gotten roasted for me for my pronunciation, his pronunciation. <laughs> so it's about, it's my turn, I guess. Karma. It's about time. Yeah, you get, um, get some yeah. coming your way. But anyway, yeah, I really, uh, I really thought that that through line of kind of the catch 22 that the artists are grappling with was really intriguing and interesting and well displayed by Pritchard in the piece. Yeah. I mean, in this piece, it definitely speaks to like one of my favorite things to read about, which is sort of, and just to talk about too, you know, have conversations with people about is sort of the whole art as commodity type thing. Um, and it's interesting how you bring up the, the cash Cobain, um, piece that we covered as well, because I wasn't thinking about that up until, you mentioned it, but one of the one of the things I found special about that Cash Cobain piece was how he talked about drill being uh, like a numbers game about quantity and and how they handled samples to like quickly break them down, chop them up, put them out there, you know, put the song and do them quickly and do lots of them. Um, and then you have the UK side of thing, you know, which is similarly um, the way that they're dealing with samples is also inspired by the way that the industry works over there, but it works in a completely different way, right? Rather than than the uh, the gritty like New York like sample machine coming out, it's more of that um, broken down and like less less. What's the word? They even talk about the difference between sampling and interpolating, right? Um, one being like you know being rooted in the idea that you had to sort of hide the samples at some point, right? You had to like chop them up and loop them up enough that they weren't super recognizable because you were trying to slide them past without getting sued for it, right? Or without having to pay the royalties of it. Um, but then the way that the UK crowd uh, it's talked about is dealing with the samples in this in this piece is literally to, I think there's a direct quote where he calls it using a, um, a crowd tested chorus or something like that, or already like a crowd approved chorus, um, which is obviously you know, more on the interpolation side than it is really even a sample because it's just like we took a chorus for a popular song and then we followed it up with a rap verse, right? Um, so, you know, I really like how the the industry side of things, you know, having in, in both the US and the UK, both having the same objective to make money, um, but then how they see those, you know, how that actually works out completely differently on the actual production side of the samples. And it's interesting because um, for me personally, uh, I listened to Diggity's Naughty by Nature and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the actual variety that it had and it wasn't just drill, drill. You know what I mean? Obviously, um, it says, there's this uh, little quote here, literally saying, I grew in the line, uh, it release notes apparently, uh, I grew up listening to 50 Cent dot 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 big up for fi- uh, big up 50 for the clearance so and if you've listened to the which album, should have been a bar like not even just like a quote <laughs> in an interview like yeah, that should or yeah. in the notes like that's yeah, a fact. bar like that should have been on the track yeah yeah definitely um so yeah if you haven't listened to the album he has a couple of tracks um that uh you know very clearly um take from 50 cent uh um sample of 50 cent so um but yeah you know even when i listened to that i was like oh this is i said on i said i remember saying on DITD, i was like this is refreshing. <laughs> like this is refreshing to watch uh, a drill um, rapper, you know, kind of branch out a bit. Um, but when I'm reading it in this way, I'm just like, 
no, it's not authentic. Da, 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 da. But so I'm kind of in two minds about it. But even when I said it's kind of interesting thinking about some of these artists mentioned. I mean, um, I've I never thought of Tion Wayne as a drill rapper. Um, I've thought of him more in the Afro swing, Afro beat, um, along with rapping, obviously, um, uh, kind of camp. And I guess that kind of just, and you know, he obviously has tracks in it, so I'm not saying, you know, he can't do it. But but that's kind of the thing, I guess, when it comes to the landscape at the moment. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, the Afro swing or overlap with the drill, um, the UK rapper overlapping with uh, jazz and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a lot of overlap coming from the landscape right now in terms of UK rap and where it is. Um, so with that said, I can't um, outright say this is kind of just a label thing. Obviously, some of these, you know, like the H record with the Shani is just straight up. Just, yeah, that, that's that's exactly that's exactly the bad shit that I'm talking about. That was just outright. Oh, yeah, let's just uh, call up a Shani. She's going to say yes, because she's going to get all the pee from it. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's whatever. Um, and he gets a number one out of it or wherever it tried. So. But yeah, there's. I think there's just level. There's levels to this, obviously. Um, in in every yeah. case. Well, I thought that was the closing sentiment of the piece. Really, to me, it felt like what Pritchard was kind of saying is like at the end of the day, <laughs> as a listener, you can kind of tell when something feels organic and authentic, and you can tell when something's not. And that, like the the just mm. overarching, I think that was the real. And he he used the phrase "clutching the pearls." Yes, I have like, the quote. This is yeah. not my drill. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's really, yeah. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, that that side is inherently wrong. And the side that's like, oh, let them go fully pop, even if it's not them and just do a grab for a number one. Like we can all kind of agree the H song. I'm not even going to hold you. When I first heard the H song, I thought it was actually kind of okay. And then I listened to it <laughs> more times and I was like, okay, maybe this isn't really that it. <laughs> I got, yeah. to be totally sure. honest, I got blinded by the video and the uh, Amelia you know, appearance. All right. But yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, no, I thought the closing sentiment was really spot Goddamn. on. was really spot yeah. on. And, and that like, you know, if it just depends on, on the intention, which at the end of the day, like no, I was, as you just you, took, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> that was, I was going to use that to jump off on something. Yeah. 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 But it's not, you can hear the intention and, and, and uh, if the intention holds, then, then go for it. Yeah, let me right, give the quote. Yeah. Let me give the quote right quick. He goes, uh, "As is ever the case, purists clutching their pearls and decrying the death of a scene when it takes on a mainstream sheen tend to be missing the bigger picture. Far removed from its origins of menacing beasts and Balakov video shoots, Jewel has a place in pop now." So yeah, did, did you have anything, Brandon? I, I didn't want to trip off. Yeah, I was just going to throw one more thing in there about intention because um, I think that that's a real something to focus on when it comes to sampling. Right? Is like, is is the intention like? using the sample for an artistic purpose or is it um as one quote in here says just because the sample is a low-hanging fruit um and the the example that he uses for that being that a lot of these artists that are using these samples um may be on the same label as the label that owns the sample right so they will only just sort of like you know reach in their hard drive to pull out you know something easy to clear something familiar and something that also then kicks them back their royalties right so that just speaks back to you know it being the intention are are we using the sample because it's a low-hanging fruit it's cheap it's accessible and it's just going to put us on a chart uh, or are we using the sample because we really want to dive into this classic song um that mm -hmm. you know we loved had some part of our 
childhood music listening taste and we want to sort of you know speak to it and also make it something new at the same time right and and the answer is that it happens both ways um and just shout out also just how detailed this piece is like the number of specific examples of songs and samples um is almost like a literally like a roadmap that you can follow the exact like thought process of the writer it's really well put together in that aspect yeah sample soul to soul and let me know it's real but Yeah, so now we'll move on to our third and final piece. Uh, Mickey, I'll throw it to you. Let's talk about Eminem. Totally. Um, so I, I always like to try to find at least a through line in the episodes, which I couldn't I couldn't exactly. I just realized I haven't been doing that. that that's on me. I, oh, I no, no, I got a little, I got a little <laughs> kind of connection because the last piece is really about like the cr- critique of something as it grows and expands, which is actually kind of at the core of mm. this piece about Eminem. Um, so the piece, again, the title is On the Eminem Show, the rapper sharply skewered society but lost sight of himself, and it's written by Paul Thompson via Mike. So the first thing that I absolutely have to talk about about this piece is it has maybe my favorite first line of a piece this year, which I will read right now and then talk about. Paul Thompson wrote... <laughs> It was probably inevitable from the moment the first letters were mailed and federal agents swarmed East Coast post offices in hazmat suits that Eminem was going to rhyme anthrax with Tampax. (laughs) Now, (laughs) the line is amazing, first and foremost, but not just because it's very funny and immediately compelling to read the rest of the piece, but also because it sets up the idea that is explored throughout which is where and when Eminem's artistry was truly meaningful and organic. The rhyme pattern, as has been talked about a lot recently, was not always used as a needless display of ability, but more of an artistic tactic. And Thompson uses this retrospective to break down a timeline of where it all began to go awry. I really love, specifically, how he classified Eminem's show as a sort of transition album and shows how it was the first step of departing from the magic of the first two albums, and especially the second of his studio albums. Now I'm going to read another paragraph that I think displays this perfectly. And I haven't done a lot of reading of pieces lately in in my intros, so I'm going back to to Old Faithful here. (laughs) Sorry for those who hate it, and you're welcome for those who love it. Here we go. (laughs) The Eminem show is not exactly a portrait of a man on the brink. There are startling confessions, some designed as such and some unwitting, but the album begins and ends in total control. And still, there is an unraveling of sorts that happens here. The personal from the political, the persona from the man behind it. This deconstruction is less revealing or at least less rewarding than it sounds. The magic trick Eminem pulled on the Marshall Mathers LP, other than that album's musical ingenuity, was the total coalescence. In nearly every verse of all his concerns as an artist with the wrenching autobiography, the free speech absolutism and cartoon violence coiling around one another until they became inextricable. When those threads are isolated from one another, some are shown to be radically more compelling than the others. I think Thompson 
I'm not sure how intentionally, reveals how it's hard to look or listen back to old Eminem with the same ears, especially for younger generations. It's the rounded, human, even with staggering flaws that was tactfully and artfully executed in those first two albums and somewhat in the third that initially grabbed us all in the moment. It's impossible, as he displays in that paragraph, to listen to him now with the same lens. So Could you that's say just, different ears? With I did say well, I did say different ears. I think I did, didn't I? Didn't I just say different? Not ears? specifically, one, but you got there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just wanted to bring it home for you. No, I think I did. I did say different ears. I don't know. But I, Charlie's referencing a thing I say often in our our group chat with our Central Sauce homies, which is when we just can't see eye to eye or hear ear to ear that people have different ears <laughs> it's his version of agree to disagree that basically. was mad corny <laughs> oh yeah listen listen brandon we're, we're doing a piece about eminem i had to go there um okay, yeah. brandon, <laughs> brandon, brandon, brandon just you know you, we've just got different different uh comedic chops okay it's fine. right that's, right, def- that's so, definitely true <laughs> anyway with uh, with all of that said what did y'all think of the piece why don't we start with uh with brandon yeah um retrospectives are always interesting yeah always interesting um mickey i know you're you read a lot of you actually have a whole podcast on retrospectives um shout out that but it's interesting how you can sort of like go back and look at an album in different contexts based Mm -hmm. on more information right like you have more time um to look at everything around an album like you know all good music journalism and all good critique um, sort of takes place like really in the moment where you know you're dealing with the things that the that the art is also dealing with at the same time but it's 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 much faster that way like when you have the time and the distance you know you can spend more time to really look at like what all was influencing and I think he draws a lot of that out um, with the stuff about the like the Bill Clinton and the George W. Bush stuff um, and how like like one of the things that Eminem was like always doing well was this sort of like sharply barbed, you know, um, critique that that often draws in like very current events um, and uses them as sort of a way to like magnify like the the, the content of, that Eminem is trying to say. Like you know, he like he grabs onto things that are already like very in the public conscience, and that speaks to. Um, the anthrax threat that that Mickey quoted as the lead to the beginning of this piece, but he also talks about how like when it was when it was really at its best, like is when he's um, critiquing you know the George W. Bush, the invasion of Iraq, like the whole thing surrounding nine eleven, and he points that out as like like Eminem was the only one doing this. Like this is at a time where that was like extremely inflammatory, you know, very risky, like because of the climate that everything's in. And when you looked at it then, you know, you were looking at it through the lens of like you were a part of that climate and that's going to influence like how you view the content and how you critique the content. But now that you're separated from the climate that he is critiquing, you get almost a broader um, sort of wraparound look on the value of the critique. And that's something that can only be done in a retrospective. And I think with a retrospective, it's easy um, it's easy to just write a retrospective and just talk about what you think now that there's been some distance. But retrospectives really shine when you say something that couldn't be said at the time, right? Or something that that you didn't think through until, you know, years and years or decades later. Yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, the social commentary is really interesting. And he does a really, uh, in the middle of the piece, a really interesting kind of lyrical breakdown of how Eminem is doing that, that he 
tent, he, you know, eventually would kind of get away from in how he was kind of playfully, and he uses the word coiling that I read before, kind of coil around the issue. And then we're getting back to the whole thing to bring it back to the first piece of the day, like a holistic view of the thing. That's not this just like direct droning attack of something with like lyrical expertise, lyrical miracle, as we can call it. And, Mm -hmm. and how it be, because of that, especially given the context of the time and how he's doing that lyrically, you can kind of see how Eminem was so revered and then how, because of how the rest of his career went, how that kind of viewpoint of like the younger generation listening to him changed. Um, but I thought that was a really kind of precise breakdown. Charlie, what did you think of the piece? Um, well, <clears throat> firstly, um, I retract the statement I said uh, before recording where I thought this was mad long and it's actually just Mike's uh, structuring of their website where they just go straight into the next article and I yeah. got really tripped up by that. I was like, why is Jack Carlo <laughs> in front of me right now? <laughs> so that, that, you kept, that, you funny kept, enough. You kept reading because it was like two white rappers back to back so you thought yeah. it was somehow connected. Yeah. Yeah. No, funny <laughs> funny enough, that, that happened to me even funnier the other day. I was reading an old like Andre G piece that he like linked to me in a thread on twitter oh, and the format i think it was on clash the format of the piece where there was like the two paragraphs of his story yeah and then you had to click read more to get more of it but right. if you didn't it went right into this like recipe for like cookies and it started it started with one of those like my mother's cookies you know it was one of those very like flowery like recipe things yeah and i didn't see that it was a different article so i was like oh like how is Andre G going to relate cookies back to <laughs> this, like, really, like, in-depth, you know, like, that's hip-hop, hilarious. like, cultural... Co- yeah, oh, it, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit I got, like, two paragraphs in about cookies before I was like, I don't, oh, think, this is, <laughs> I don't think this is the story I clicked on. Yeah, um, yeah, so, I mean... Uh, ne- next up for Andre is literally do that now and just trip Brandon up <laughs> yeah. heavy and just talk about cookies and then no, for link real. that to, I don't know, something uh, going, on, going on right now. But yeah, um, so to the whole article itself and not the rest of the stuff going on below it. Um, I think it's always uh, interesting thinking about Eminem from, for me personally, from a perspective of uh, someone that, because funny enough, the Eminem show is kind of like the first album I first first anything Eminem I actually remember listening to at a decent at a decent pace. I don't remember listening to anything from MLP or Sim Shady LP as a youth, um, but I do remember watching the music video to Without Me. Um, so thinking about it personally from my perspective, it's just uh, it's, it's it's always interesting thinking about an album from uh, around that period and uh, how that affected the landscape. I think the political um sentiments given throughout um <clears throat> it's kind of just a highlight for me personally thinking about uh how Eminem managed to kind of like Mickey said take all the things he's obviously known for um and just smashing them together in such a um esoteric way and it kind of um, reminds me of um kind of like steps below like satanic panic of the 80s just a little step below but thinking about um, how uh, even the uh, the one track that he references um, on like Square Dance and how you know people are after nine eleven were all signing up and stuff like that and he was kind of just hey guys look what you're doing here and um, it's it's interesting thinking about Eminem from um, how as a you know as the premier white rapper of hip hop history um, of how he actually you know made in a concerted effort 
um, to talk about uh, the issues going on everywhere. And even weirder thinking about it now, and I can never, unfortunately, ever get past thinking about Eminem now compared to then and thinking about where it went wrong. And obviously the article kind of gets there, um, obviously in, in obviously, you know, keeping it closeted in the space of his, uh, what, what he calls uh, in some ways the last of his uh, career's first phase as 2004's on calls hampered by struggles with substance addiction. Um, going into, keep, keeping it um, enclosed in that, um, it always um, uh, gives me the, it, w- it always makes me want to think about afterwards, I guess, which um, I guess we'll have to wait um, for the 2004 Encore 20-year uh, retrospective um, in, 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 a, in a year or so, so I'm uh, going to have to wait on that. But yeah, obviously as an article itself, as retrospective is goes, obviously very, uh, very solid and uh, like echo your guys' sentiments on the, uh, especially on the front of um, saying something fresh that obviously couldn't have been said then or couldn't have been gleaned from then. And I think that has a lot to do with just how uh, in, in my eternal quote uh, of life of how uh, the 2000s was just a fucking weird um, decade <laughs> overall and I think Eminem's uh, has a lot to <laughs> has a lot to be uh, uh, part, a, a big part of that um, fucked upness of the uh, of the 2000s yeah so uh, you kind of talked about the 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 next thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit which is the how Thompson kind of dissected the root of where everything went awry and then like how it translated. So like the best, and this is probably my favorite part of the piece because it was a real like light bulb moment that I was like, that was like, oh wow, that's really interesting. And then like, oh, because, <laughs> because he, he, he points out how the way I am, which to me, like, so I feel like the Eminem album that really like grabbed me and will forever be the one is the Marshall Mathers LP for sure. Like I played that so many times back to back during the year when it came out, that was really like a big album for me and like my progression of music listening and stuff too. And the way I am kind of, he describes how the way I am gave Eminem permission to kind of go in this like drone, like kind of, uh, level of, of rapping rather than the more like pliable version of himself. Um, which then like translated to some songs in a way that wasn't executed as well on the Eminem show. And I was like, oh, that's a hundred percent true. And then got into the space because like the drone of, and he kind of like hints at this, but it, it, it like him saying one thing made me think about, about like all of the other ways that this is true within the song. And then like how it really translated in the career. And I kind of like how he li- kind of left it open and said his little analysis and then moved on. And I like when it shows like a lot of restraint in writing to point up out something really interesting, but not beat it to death to where you're like, wow, he like went through all of this stuff. So you can kind of think of stuff on your own. But it was like made me think of how the way I am, it, it, why it worked so well, which is really that it was like such a vent of a very specific nature. But then it was like so successful that he did it for things that like had this broader reach of things and use that same ideology behind it rather than being pliable when something that he's like kind of rapping about isn't so 
focus, he's still doing that droning thing and it just doesn't work in other outlets and not knowing like how to separate those two and how that kind of carried through his, his work in the 2010s in a lot of ways. And when you listen to a lot of Eminem stuff now, he'll like sit in this one pocket and he'll like really hit stuff home over and over again. But it's like this stream of consciousness rather than this like I'm really frustrated with my lack of privacy, which is like the way I am kind of whole thing. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, it was, it was just a very like cool way to kind of drop a little light bulb of like, this is an observation I made that played into how a lot of these things started to go awry in this retrospective album. I thought that was really cool. Do you think that was, yeah, um, think... sorry, go Rome. No, you go ahead. I was going to ask quickly, do you think that was a concerted effort, um, to, um, take that kind of like, uh, you know, in the words of Spinal Tap, you know, rip the knob off kind of, uh, kind of edginess and just like constantly go at sixth gear on every track that you do. Cause obviously it says right after that paragraph, this would become a far more serious problem in the 2010s. Um, so I was just wondering if you guys thought it was a concerted effort from him that he just, um, I don't know, enjoyed venting in that fashion. Well, that's hard I to like it... really say, right. It's, but it's also like, undeniably if something is like as effective as something like that is and also he describes how the way i am was made right he says it's like it was like the label was looking for one more single he did it like kind of on the fly and it became this huge thing so mm. he was like oh this wasn't a thing that was even in my album making mm-hmm. process and it really worked so like yeah i gotta make a few more of those that seems just like a natural kind of happening because of yeah I, I, I was gonna i was gonna throw it back to the idea of like intention again mm. um what being like you know pre the eminem show like that sort of anger and that sort of like pointed um inflammatory stuff was like very natural because that's you know a big part of like who he is as an artist uh, but then charlie it reminded me of actually when we talked about music to be murdered by i think when you wrote an art article on about music to or when you brought an article on music to be murdered by about um, what was it about? What's it called? Like like really inflammatory rap that's just sort of inflammatory right. to pick up headlines, yes. right? Yes. Um, there's a specific word for it that I'm missing here, but it's like sort of in this retrospective, and you you guys referred to it as um, sort of like the way it all goes wrong. Um, but I think that one of the ways Thompson specifically classified it was the end of an era or like the end of a phase, right? Um, which is again like something that's you know really interesting about retrospectives because you can you know sort of put those bookmarks in right when you have the context for what comes after, um, and it, and it seems to be sort of that shift driven by a less like natural um, a less natural more calculated more thought out processing of sort of that anger and that inflammatory usage um, into a more you know, rushed sort of industry driven, like this is my brand and now I have to stick to it kind of thing, you know, um, which is what we talked about with music to be murdered by. I'm forgetting the specific song. Um, I think it was the first song on the album actually was like, seemed, you know, to be very like inflammatory just for the point of like, Oh, I know that this album just dropped and people are listening to it. So let's get them to tweet about it. Right. Like as you know, song one, um, when, you know, you go off the cuff and you're like, that's, that, you know, seems much more of a, uh, marketing plan than it really does to be like an artistic, um, choice of style, right? This album sort of maybe being like the beginning of that transitional phase. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's like artistic tact versus like capitalist tact, which is where yeah. I haven't said it in a while, but you know, it's just an eradicate mm-hmm. capitalism idea. <laughs> We've ever heard one. Boom, boom, boom. 
Yeah. Any, yeah, that's, I think that's actually a really great, good way to end it there. There be, if we want to close it out there, I thought this was, yeah, this is one of my favorite retrospectives I've read in a while though, for sure. So shout out Paul Thompson. Yeah. I also didn't know that uh, the Eminem show was apparently inspired by Jim Carrey. And now I want a um, oh, Don FM, the Eminem show. Like I want a Don FM Eminem show, like side by side, like <laughs> analysis, like through the lens of, of Jim Carrey and hip hop, right? Like, that's funny. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that's good. Well, yeah. get pitching. Yeah, I guess I'm just giving it away for free out here. Kind of, yeah. So you're fucked. <laughs> well done. Last one. Good job, Ben. All right. So yeah, if that if that wraps it up, um, I'll go ahead and just shout out the three pieces we did today. So we started with Decadence and Disenchantment, an edition of Music Journalism Insider by Todd L. Burns. Um, if you're not already, give it a subscribe. You can find it at musicjournalisminsider.com. Um, second, we did Amid a Rash of Cheesy Samples is UK Rap Running Out of Ideas by Will Pritchard for The Guardian. And then we wrapped it up with On the Eminem Show, The Rapper Sharply Skewered Society But Lost Sight of Himself by Paul Thompson for Mike. Um, as always, you know, if you are a listener and you are a writer or you follow other like small writers or small publications we might not know about, um, send us your stuff, send us their stuff. We're always looking to sort of, um, you know, expand the, the writers and the publications that we're covering. Um, and we know that like some of those smaller writers, you know, are really writing some good stuff that's just not, you know, being seen or not circulating as well as it could be. Um, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find our podcast. That really helps us boost our own viewership, which in turn um, boosts the props that we're able to give to the writers and the publications that we cover here and the topics that they cover. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, this has been In Search of Sauce. I was your host today, Brandon Hill. You can find me on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Oh, okay. We're plugging yeah. socials now. Sign off. <laughs> yep, sign off. <laughs> Blessings. Take it easy. Peace out, everyone. Thanks for listening. It was October 1999, by the way. Oh, that's... <laughs> oh, that's the crazy. XXL cover. <laughs>